The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome to today's show. I'm your host, Kate Ebner, and this month of October, I'm going to bring you a series of special guests whose leadership and vision is focused on food. It is the harvest month. So my first guest is someone whose work I discovered while reading a flight magazine on Southwest Airlines last June. His name is Joe Simperman, and his work in the city of Cleveland has made him a champion of gardeners and a true pioneer in a movement to create a food revolution that connects inner-city neighborhoods with healthy, locally-grown food. Um, The article that I read started out with a great line, and I'll share it with you here today. When Cleveland City Councilman Joe Simperman sees an empty city lot, he sees a potential garden and the promise of a food revolution. Welcome to Visionary Leader, Joe. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. I'm really glad to have you here today. Great to be with you. Thank you. And, you know, as I as I have read and actually reread the story that was in Spirit Magazine about you, Joe, I've really been struck by your accomplishment. And I want to um, really talk today about what you're doing, um, what your vision is for the work that you're doing, and how you think it can make a difference, you know, even beyond Cleveland. But I really want to start by inviting you to tell us a bit about who you are. I think your own story is fascinating, and it certainly helps us all understand your passion and, and the momentum that you're really committed to. So would you mind just giving us a bit of background about you? No, I, um, I'm, it's, I'm very honored to be on your show. I was, I was born and raised in the city of Cleveland, and um, I'm a proud Clevelander, and I'm a child of a mom who was born in Slovenia, and English was a second language in our family. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a family of modest means. My dad worked in a machine shop, and, um, you know, my mom stayed at home to raise the, uh, my sister and I, and I had pretty much a dream childhood. I grew up in a neighborhood that was as culturally and racially diverse as you could get, and uh, it was right in the heart of the city. And I just feel very, very lucky to be from this city, and I feel an incredible debt of gratitude to it. And, you know, as you grew up in, in Cleveland and, you know, as you were you know growing up, did you imagine that you'd ever be a city councilman and leading this food revolution? What was your path? Well, I was uh, actually um, very seriously considering becoming a Jesuit priest, uh, a Catholic priest. And um, when I was 
graduating from college, I went into an organization called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, where basically you work for a year in a um, social service agency in cities across America, and you make no money, and you live in a community with other people, and you really appreciate and understand, you know, what it's like to live, um, you know, paycheck to paycheck, and and give back something to this great country. And so um, I came back to Cleveland realizing that that wasn't what I was supposed to do, and because I had worked on so many different campaigns at that point, probably about 30 different campaigns for different candidates and issues and other things like that, I thought, you know, I wanted to do something uh, positive for the community and the city that I live in, so I decided to run for council. And the first question my mom and dad had for me was, what the heck are you thinking? Um, Because I I think they they thought, you know, this this isn't something that our family does, but it was something that I felt called to do. Well, you know, it's always interesting to me to hear a story like that because it all sounds sort of logical in hindsight, but I know from the work I do as a leadership coach that to be on track to become a Jesuit priest and to be doing this volunteer work and to reach the moment of choice where you decide to run for city council and really change the the tra- trajectory of your of your career and your work, um, it's, a, it's a significant set of events, you know, and that was in 1995. Is that right? Yeah, and I think it was something that, you know, I, I don't really feel um in a lot of ways that this is this is that much different. I mean obviously, you know, there's there's some things that are clearly not the same, but you know my mom and dad always taught me, you know, if you want to be happy, you have to figure out how to serve other people. And I think that you'll find that among a lot of people in this business and and in the business of trying to rebuild cities, um, you know, people who start out like that oftentimes are able to be influenced by, listen to, and understand and appreciate their constituents who are the ones who ultimately teach, you know, good public leaders how to become even better. You know, I, I like how you think about that. And you know, you often talk about being educated as a councilman by your constituents. How do they educate you? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, city, uh, the city of Cleveland is a city that leads by example. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit about the food revolution and about food justice. We've got north of 300 community gardens, farms, uh, pocket parks, places where people grow produce, farm stands, farmers markets. You know, in the city of Cleveland, you put all those together, and what you really have is is a community of people who appreciate and understand great food, who understand great local food, who in so many ways are being true to the agrarian DNA, uh, which is Cleveland. You know, if you're African American, you might migrated here from the south, chances are at some point your ancestors were working on a farm. If you're Eastern European or Western European, uh, this, a lot goes the same way. If you speak Spanish, um, you know, it, chances are that in somewhere in your family history, you know, there's a farmer. And the thing about Cleveland is that we have so much vacant land uh, based on the fact that we were at the center in, in so many ways of the uh, the foreclosure crisis that now people are starting to convert that land to things that people never thought would be possible. We've got a six-acre farm in Ohio City. It's led by a group at Ohio City Incorporated, which is a local development group, and two people that I work with closely, Eric Whoopser and Amanda Dempsey, have really taken that under their wing along with our public housing authority. It's right behind a 500-person apartment uh, public housing authority complex where a lot of the residents not only have a garden, but they also are able to shop for um, reduced um, cost, uh, incredibly local food. It's literally grown in their backyard. Um, you know, we've got everything from, you know, multi-acre farms in the heart of the city where people never thought development would happen. And really what the residents teach me is that, you know, if you put your mind to it and if you have this idea, you can make anything happen. That's part of the reason why I love being in the city, why I love cities so much, is they are just absolute examples of the impossible becoming real. And Mm -hmm. the only reason is that I I find in public life and in the work that I do, the most applicable trait is will. And if you have the will 
and uh, the heart to do it, you know, you can do it. And, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes and I've learned from my constituent term, in terms of how to do things better. But what we find is that there are so many examples already out there of people who are doing great things. I believe the role of leadership and the role of government is to connect those people and to be as much a bridge between resource and need as is possible. Well, I know that you're, I know that's, that's how you're doing your job. And I know that it's to great, great benefit for Cleveland. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, as, as, as I listen to you talk about this, um, you refer to the Ohio City Farm, and I know that it's one of the largest contiguous urban farms in the country, and it's adjacent to public housing. It's a, a part of what's really making Cleveland a poster child for the urban farm movement right now. And I also am aware that Cleveland actually was selected to host the 8th International Public Market Conference, which happened last week. Is that right? Yeah, we're still kind of living off the high from that. Um, we had hundreds of people here from, you know, countries all over the world. Uh, I talked to people from Hong Kong. I talked to people from Poland. I talked to people from Canada. You know, I talked to people from as far away from Ohio as the exotic land of Michigan um, who came here Who came here to basically um, – uh, talk to us about what they're doing for public local farms and how they're working with local food. And it's just been absolutely extraordinary to see the kind of interaction that we've had, but also the Cleveland's on the right track. We're doing a lot of things right. And, you know, I think what we're trying to do is figure out how to do things even better and to host that international markets conference with the heart of the city of Cleveland being the West side market, you know, where we have this amazing indoor, outdoor produce, meat, cheese, um, place where over 105 people are, are, you know, food artisans, they're food, you know, uh, producers and sellers. You know, we really got to tell the story of Cleveland, which was an amazing experience. And people are still talking about that in Cleveland because just to have that many people come here and for us to share the story of our, our local food movement has been pretty extraordinary. You know, it, it is. I mean, I think the more I learn about the story and what's happening in Cleveland, I think the more inspiring it is. And I'm wondering, what kinds of um, obstacles have you encountered as you, from when you think back, I mean, here we are in 2012, if you think back to 1995, 1997, up until now, um, I know that one of the ways you've been leaders has been in creating zoning that actually works for community gardening and, and, and other kinds of legislation that's really supported what's happening here. Can you just tell us a little bit about the kinds of barriers you've encountered and what you've done? Well, you know, some of the barriers have been, you know, self-made, right? And those are always the hardest ones, um, you know, people's perceptions that, you know, if we have local food and urban agriculture in the city of Cleveland in some way we're regressing, right, or that we're, you know, going back on our industrial, you know, postmodern world in the city as a sophisticated place to, to live and, and raise a family. You know, other people, you know, just to kind of scratch their head because in so many ways, you know, and this goes back to the 1950s, you know, we've become distanced from our food. You know, food has become an industry in America, and there's a lot of things that, you know, the world has benefited from as a result of that. And there's a lot of things that we haven't. And so, you know, when you start talking about growing things, it's kind of for some people counterintuitive, right? You don't grow food, you go to a grocery store for that. So those have been a few of the things, you know, the other issues have been something as simple as water rates. Um, you know, we've been charging gardeners, you know, a commercial water rate instead of an entrepreneurial urban local food agriculture water rate, which we created in order to help more people be able to, to grow crops in the city of Cleveland. That was something we just kind of had to wade through and deal with the bureaucracy. And other things are just, you know, really kind of getting people to understand what this is about. Yes, this is about land reutilization. Yes, this is about, you know, taking something which the city has a lot of land and, and, and making something even better out of it. But, you know, we we don't take care of each we don't take care of each other enough in the society. We don't. Um, we have way too many kids that are overweight and undernourished. 
We have too many seniors who are, are going to bed trying to decide if they're going to spend money on their utilities, on their prescriptions, or on food. And when we live in this country, which has given all of us the most amazing gift of all, to, to be a citizen, to be a participant in this democracy, you know, we still have way too many people that aren't getting the full benefits of this country, and we have to do more. And really, for me, with the local food movement about, it's as much about local food and entrepreneurship and great land reuse as it is us taking care of each other. You know, it, it, the Holy Scriptures say, whatsoever you do the least of these, you do unto me. And every time we do something for local food and urban agriculture, I just think maybe this is one more way that we can fulfill the American promise, that we're going to take care of each other, that we are going to be there for each other. We will be our brothers and sisters keepers. And I'm not talking about a Republican mindset. I'm not talking about a Democratic mindset. I'm talking about the fact that we live in the greatest country in the world. So let's start treating each other like we are the greatest brothers and sisters that we could possibly be. So Joe, as you're talking, I'm sitting here smiling and I'm listening to you and thinking, wow, his mind moves so fast and his <laughs> ability to speak is just as rapid. And I'm ho- and I, I want to... Um compliment you actually on the uh, the 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 depth of what you've just said and, and maybe um, slow us down a little bit so that we can actually take in your message which is really about um, first of all taking pride in who we are and in, in this country and the opportunities it provides and then making sure that those are available to everybody and seeing ourselves as kind of united in a common purpose rather than divided by the many things that we we can think of to label ourselves as different from one another. And I hear these words, you know, food justice. And I think for some of our listeners, that might actually be new vocabulary. So I want to just have you tell us more about what you mean when you say the words food justice. Sure. You know, in the city of Cleveland a few years ago, we were very lucky to have a uh, nationally known um, uh, individual come here. His name is Dr. Anthony Eiton. He's based out of California, and he is a um, a triple threat. I I tease him when I see him. He's a Stanford-trained doctor, lawyer, and uh, public health expert. He's He's just an amazing man. And he came to Cleveland, and he analyzed two neighborhoods that are 15 minutes apart from each other on the same road. One neighborhood is in the city of Cleveland. It's called Huff. Uh, It's predominantly African-American. Many of the people who live there are poor, but it's got a growing middle class, um, and it's literally five minutes away from downtown Cleveland. He... um, analyzed another uh, neighborhood, a city actually called Lyndhurst, which is a wonderful suburb, 15 minutes away from Huff, uh, a lot of working class people, uh, culturally diverse, but probably more white than, than anything else. And he found that in 2008, by studying death certificates from 1,000 people in each locale, that people in Lyndhurst in 2008 were living 23 years longer than people in Huff. Yeah. And the reason for that, more than half of those years were attributable to smoking and to diet. And when you you think about that, right? It's it's that was 2008. We're in 2012. We're, you know, we're on the edge of curing so many diseases, right? We, you know, through through incredible things that we see from institutes across the the globe, you know, we're doing more things to provide more fresh water to more people. We're there's so many advancements through technology, through medical research, that we're really you know learning how to live longer and in so many ways export some of the best stuff that we have in America to the rest of the world and, and share some of the knowledge that we were able to get. And yet in our own American cities, places like Cleveland, you know, you've got life expectancy discrepancies of over two decades. Mm-hmm. And and when you think about with smoking and diet that are, you know, together contributing to about twelve years of that expectancy discrepancy, you think if we could just change the way we live, we could live twelve years longer, 
right? How many more graduations of grandchildren would be seen? How many more people would be able to live longer and contribute back to society because they have those extra years? And it's really, um, it's, it's the worst kind of tragedy because it's so preventable. Right. I mean, there's things that happen that are, you know, natural disasters. And, you know, you think to yourself, man, you know, that that was horrific. And, you know, who knew that tsunami or tornado or whatever was coming? But this is something where every single day, you know, things are happening where people are literally shortening their lives. And to me, when I talk about food justice, it's how do we translate, at least on the nutritional end, a better way and more information and better access for people so that the residents in every single community live as long as each other does and we add an extra 10 years for everyone, you know, and Cleveland isn't alone. You know, these studies have been done in New Orleans. They've been done in Detroit. They've been done in Chicago. They've been done all over the country. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, 23-year life expectancy discrepancy is pretty much in the middle of the pack. There's, there's some cities that are even, you know, the, the, the gap is even wider. And so I keep thinking with local food and urban agriculture and better access to fresher food for more people, what can we do to actually change the, the rate that people are dying in our cities? And, and for me, that's Thank what you. it boils down to, to food justice. Thank you. That's very helpful to hear you describe that. We're going to take a break. I'm speaking today with Cleveland City Councilman Joe Simperman, and we're talking about food justice. We're talking about a vision for urban farming that could really change uh, the the quality of life and even length of life for American citizens in, in cities everywhere. So we'll be right back. This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Social media is growing at an astounding rate. In just virtually five short years, we have seen YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter take the world by storm. How do you effectively make social media work for you? Tune in to The Social Universe with host Kurt Wilhelm. We'll show you how to market your business or yourself to get ahead, especially in unstable economic times. We'll also discuss practices that you can apply to increase visibility and revenue as you unlock the mysteries of the social universe. The Social Universe is broadcast live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Zoom Leadership. It's the big picture issues of the day, up close and personal capabilities of leadership, and a desirable future of constant renewal. Zoom Leadership. It's the economic crisis made clear, patterns and perspectives of leadership, and the importance of changing the way we pursue our future. Join host John Schmidt every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Zoom Leadership. An inside look at what's really going on in business, government, and civil society. Tune in every week on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Kate Ebner, and I'm speaking today with City Councilman Joe Simperman of Cleveland, Ohio, who's leading some groundbreaking work to ensure that the people of Cleveland have access to healthy, locally grown food and all the benefits that come with that. They're doing this through an amazing um, initiative, uh, Community Gardens on Vacant Lots um, legislation that's groundbreaking in the nation in terms of really uh, creating the zoning that allows for some very innovative um, uh, community-based work to happen. Uh, they're making fresh produce available to people who might not have access to that high-quality fresh food otherwise. And we've been talking about food justice. Um, Joe, you're at the center of this effort. And, you know, as we were talking before the break, we were really, really, uh, you were giving us an understanding of how important it is to close the gap in terms of the disparity of what people are experiencing. You know, the, you, you put it in terms of you know, just met looking at the difference in lifespan between populations in the same city. Um, and I want to um, jump back in with an invitation for you to tell us um, more about what you think. Why is it that community gardens, for example, can um, help people? in such a big way. Like when, when I get, when I read your story or talk to you, I have such a big sense of like somehow gardening is the key to everything. Tell me about that. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I always say to people, you know, a crazy thing happened on the way to the garden. Um, you know, in the process of, of establishing a zoning code that actually allows us as a city to designate areas um, zoned for community gardening. And, you know, we have every, um, Food farmers market in the city of Cleveland that uses public land also accepts food stamps and the Ohio Direction Card, SNAP, EBT benefits. You know, for people who are on subsidized uh, agricultural assistance, um, we allow farm stands. We do all this stuff. It, it seems as if the end is urban agriculture, and policy-wise and legislation-wise, it always is. But you know, I find that when you have a community garden in a neighborhood, it it kind of um, turns up the humanity. Among people, you can't you can't have a garden without interacting with other people who are different from you, who share similar values, but maybe look at the world in a unique way, who are hardworking, um, and and so the byproducts tend to be communities that are are happier, communities that are safer, um, communities where the property values are steady, if not growing, and you know it's funny like we. We look at for we look for all these things in cities, and we try to approach them head on. And and what I've learned is that you know sometimes the the growth and the progress happens in the peripheral vision. You know, it's it's if you do the right thing, and if you answer needs, and if you try to you know uh, facilitate change, even though sometimes that's difficult. The journey to get there is equally important, and what I see with the community garden effort is that it, it, it's kind of like changing the tone in, in some neighborhoods with people who you know, maybe never ever thought they had something in common with somebody or never even knew someone, and as a result of people community gardening together, you know, uh, working together for urban agriculture, doing all the stuff that local food and local food production means, it, it almost forces you as a city to 
pay attention to other people in a way that, you know, oftentimes you miss, even if you walk past people every single day on the street. Yeah, I mean, I love what you said about how it changes the tone. And um, it sounds like, you know, we were talking earlier about sort of just slowing things down, making uh, making a, a, an opportunity for connection and um, shared work. How does it actually work in a community garden, Joe? Do people each have a, a, a patch of land or do people actually work on the same plots? Um, in both, really. Um, there's some gardens that are that are owned by the city of Cleveland. There's other gardens that are owned by neighbors. Um, some guerrilla gardening goes on where, you know, a bank owns it or, you know, a property, you know, nobody knows who owns this property, but people have been, you know, gardening, gardening around the periphery forever, and then they start to move further and further in. It's it, it really depends on where you are. Um, we have some gardens, like a garden in, in Cleveland called the Kentucky Garden in a neighborhood called Ohio City, one of the older neighborhoods in the city of Cleveland. That's been a garden since the days of World War One. Um, it predated Victory Gardens in World War II. Um, mm. You've got other. You, yeah, it's crazy. You've got other gardens right now that are under plow for the first time. You know, in in years they've been just vacant fields and vacant land. You know, with different organizations that are, are trying to foment that and augment that kind of growth. So it really kind of depends. But the the one common denominator is that in every single census tract in the city, amongst every culture and denomination, in every corner of Cleveland, um, there's something going on with urban agriculture and community gardening. And it's kind of taken on this unstoppable force feeling. You know, it, it, it City Hall, you know, our job, I think, is, as a city is to, you know, um, provide support, as, as I've said before, to be a bridge between resource and need, you know, to kind of see where people are and, you know, not listen to why you can't get somewhere, but figure out how you do get there. And then, you know, once we enable that, once we create an environment where people feel that their efforts for urban agriculture would be welcome, you know, it's our job to get out of the way and then to provide any kind of staff support that we can. And we're not completely there yet in Cleveland, but we're getting close. Um, you know, our mayor has set a date for 2019 as the date when we will have a community garden within five blocks of every resident in the city of Cleveland. We're uh, we're at about 48 percent of the way there. Um, wow. Yeah. How and, do you? No, okay, let's stop on that for a second. How do you? How do you make such a thing happen? And we're, our show is about making vision real. So how do you do such a thing? Well, we first of all, we figure out where we were. When we started this a couple of years ago, we were at about 29%, 30%, right there at the third cusp. Yeah. And then you realize you want to do something like that because you know that if people can walk to a garden, not drive to it, not even take a bike to it, if they can literally walk to a garden, that their level of participation is going to exponentially increase. And by participation, I don't just mean that they're going to be planting, you know, rutabagas and turnips and carrots but that, you know, they're going to actually be able to enjoy it or they could walk to it because a lot of the gardens have farm stands and they sell their own produce or they'll just be able to enjoy it, you know, know that it's in their neighborhood and know that they have access to it. So we started out with what we had and then we realized that if we did some um, – uh, collaboration with organizations like the Cuyahoga County Board of Developmental Disabilities or the Cleveland Metropolitan School System or, you know, any one of a group of nonprofits in the city of Cleveland that hold land, we could really start to bump that number up. And we mapped it out and we talked to people and we reached out to people and said, you know, are you interested in starting a garden here? And we kind of tried to take the best of what we knew in terms of how to get things started. And then, you know, you couple them with people who See, the thing is, it doesn't matter if the person knows anything about gardening. There's qualities in people who get things done that are common throughout the world. And mm. if they're trying to, you know, start a democracy, 
you know, in you know the Arab Spring, or if they're innovating medical technology in Sweden, or if they're doing urban agriculture in Cleveland. My gut is, if you really looked at the people who are at the head of any one of those movements, there are similar traits that they share in terms of encountering the unknown and figuring out a way through it. And once we find those people in Cleveland, that's it. Then you know you're done because once the people identify themselves, and they may have an affinity for gardening, they may not. Once you explain to them what the benefits are, you know how it helps to improve the quality of life in communities, you know people generally embrace that. And then you get to a point where you've gotten people who, frankly, are teaching you about gardening because they're taking whatever they understand and know about the world and their community and what people like and, and what people would buy. And it just starts to change things in a very um, dramatic, radical way that you would have never expected, but it's there. And you know, it's interesting in, in, in Cleveland, we're, we're blessed with not only the people who are here, but um, we've got a lot of people who are coming here from Liberia. We've got a lot of refugees here from Bhutan and from Burma. And all of those communities have rich agriculture traditions. And it's really interesting to see their own techniques and methods and how they do it. Um, it just adds a real zest uh, to the urban agriculture movement in Cleveland. And it's just been so awesome you know, to see that the, the forces of, of urban agriculture and community gardening have been joined by people from all over the world. You know, you, it's, it's a very powerful point to think about um, – universal uh, human experience of, of gardening or farming around the world and really bringing people together, uh, diverse people together over this, this common activity and this well understood, um, you know, it's not a hobby, it's actually a way of, of living and of, of creating life and it's something that all people really enjoy. And I want to go back again um, for a minute, Joe, to this idea of um, a garden within a five minute walk from every every residential uh community and you know when you when you think about that you know so you've gone from 29 or 30 percent up to 48 percent um how do you like I'm, i'm curious again sort of at the really practical level do you have a, a target like next year we want to be at 55 percent or you know how do you how do you move the dial on that literally it- it's a, it's a great question. Um, I don't. What I know, though, is that we have the the wheels in motion now to, to get there. Um, and, and I'll tell you something. I don't know if it's going to be 60. I don't know if it's going to be 71. There's going to come a point in the next year and a half when if we hit 60 or we hit 71, it's over. Right? You, I, I've, I've seen When suddenly comment. it's accomplished, you mean? It, the movement. Um, yeah. There's, there's in every single movement that I've seen succeed, there comes a point when you, you know, you encounter the inevitable. Um, And that's the challenge. So getting from 30 to 48 was easy. Um, If if getting to the inevitable is 49, then 48 to 49 is going to be the biggest iota of a jump that we've ever made. But my gut is that we're going to get to a point where we're going to realize that then we're hitting it. And it's going to be a lot harder, and there's going to be a lot more need for creativity. But what we've done is basically reached out to every single group that we can think of, uh, churches, nonprofits, uh, schools, um, groups that serve people with disabilities, uh, groups that are interested in in, uh, 
entrepreneurship, uh, people that want to do microloans. And, and you're starting to see now amongst those conversations things happening that we didn't plan. So my guess is the next time we do a snapshot, which will probably be in June, if we're at 48, 49% right now, by then my guess is that we'll be at 60, just from, wow. what, I've, from what I can feel. But it's going to happen at some point before 2019, but it'll happen when we get to that point where we know that the next step is going to be it. And so, you know, we're just trying to build up to that. The key for all of this, obviously, is sustainability and longevity, right? You don't want to start something only to have it go away the next season. So yeah. part of the reason I think why it's taking a little bit of time is because what we're trying to do is build that that base where, you know, you've got people who, who buy into this vision, you know, not just because it's the trendy thing to do or it's the newest fad, but because they really buy into it, as you said, kind of as a vocation or as a way to live. And, um, you know, I, I think we're really starting to see some progress that way. More and more people are talking to each other. More and more ideas are being shared on how to get this uh, movement going in different parts of the city. And, you know, my hope is that by the beginning of 2018, we'll be there. But the reason we've given ourselves by 20, 2019 and why the mayor has such vision for this is that 2019 will be the 50-year anniversary of the uh, activity that happened in Cleveland where um, our water was horribly polluted. And mm -hmm. it was really the river in Cleveland that, you know, had um, a lot of environmental issues that inspired the Clean Water Act that now benefits, you know, 300 million Americans across the country. And so the mayor is really focusing on 2019 as a, as a year of sustainability, a year when we're going to really hit that point where we don't just, you know, think we should be environmentally conscious and socially green, but also that we're actually doing it. And so we feel with what's happening right now, we're going to get there. But, you know, it's it's the, the journey up the mountain that we're really starting to experience. And I have to be honest with you, even though it's a lot of hard work, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, <laughs> I picked that up from listening to you talk about it easily. It's, it's um, you know, for those of you listening out there who've been following our show and thinking about how do you create a vision and then how do you make it happen, you'll notice that date, right, 2019. We have talked, Joe, on this show about how important it is to set a frame for your vision, to give yourself an endpoint that you can really see and describe and get excited about and then work toward. And so I, I think part of the excitement about having you as a guest today is because you the vision is is really exciting and it it is exactly the kind of vision we're talking about and you're enlisting and enrolling people to really make it real and we just have a couple minutes and then we're going to take a break but this is a slight change of direction but i think it's another good example of a a very specific thing that you've done that has made a difference and i want you to tell us about the 2009 chicken and bees legislation well that was that was uh that was a um that was a journey if ever there was one um we have a lot of people in Cleveland who um wanted to keep chickens and we had a lot of people who wanted to keep bees and you know again a residue of the post industrial uh municipal legislation um you weren't allowed to do that and there was no legal means of doing it even though people were and um you know, people want to buy honey from someone they know who's keeping their own bees. People want to buy chicken uh, eggs from, you know, people who they know are raising the chickens. And we realized that you couldn't do a, um, like a special permit or just create one part of the city or another where you could do that. We, we thought we really have to make this accessible to everybody. And so we literally changed the zoning code and said that any person who lives in a standard Cleveland home anywhere in Cleveland is allowed to keep up to six chickens and two beehives. And um, when we did that, we brought in a lot of people who were 
uh, doing it outside of the code and enable them to be out in the open about what they were doing. We also recognized that there was a lot of, there were a lot of people out there who wanted to do it and didn't know how to do it. And by passing the legislation, it gave people a sense that they could do it. And then the other thing that happened was um, we created a scholarship program for people who wanted to start but couldn't afford the, I think it was 40 or $50 for the permit so that they could do it for free. They could literally wow, pull fantastic. the permit. And it just gave people a sense of, you know, it, you know I always say this, Kate, people, people appreciate this once you do it. It's one thing for the city to get out of the way. It's another thing for the city to sanction something that's going on and to say, we value this. This is important to us. And when you pass legislation and you allow people to do that, that's exactly what you're doing. Fantastic. And, you know, people were doing it anyway, but what it did was it just told them that we appreciate them and we have their back. Well, you know, we're going to take a break right now, Joe. And when we come back, I want to I want to go deeper into some of what you've talked about and we want to hear your vision. So we'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Today's business marketplace is becoming increasingly global thanks to technologies that didn't even exist a few short years ago. Your business might be a startup or you might be one of the global 500. Either way, you're probably looking at customers and competitors in faraway regions. Listen for Global Reach with host Tay Rivez as she brings together experts, ideas, and listeners to help you anywhere in the world. Global Reach is broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. You've been listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm Kate Ebner, and my guest today has been Cleveland City Council Member Joe Simperman. We are talking about the extraordinary things happening in Cleveland. I think this is one of the most um, inspiring visions um, that I've, I've learned of in recent months, and I'm excited to have you on the show, Joe. As we go into this last segment, um, I want to I want to go back to something that you said. I, I'm so struck by all that you know and all that you've learned about how to make something happen and how to get behind or sort of get with the great ideas and the energy and the passion of people to create something better in their lives and in their communities. And so I'm, I'm, I'm talking a lot cause I'm processing this uh, as I'm, as I'm listening to you today, but what I'm, what I'm noticing is that number one, you really believe in people and number two, you really listen and 
help the system support what they what they want and what works well for people and what gives people what they need in order to live good lives so you you make the system work for them and then i think the third piece is you seem to have an eye for um uh, figuring out what works. So you've said a couple of key things for the listeners who are listening. It might be helpful if I say them back. Um, one of them is look for the people who make things happen. And you said across cultures and around the world, there are always those people who just make things happen. So they're key to getting something really going. Um, and I think you also said that there's a tipping point, um, my language, not yours, but where something goes from being kind of an uphill climb to suddenly, boom, you've made it. But there's usually a period of struggle and creativity and intense effort before you kind of reach that point. And so you're able, because you know that, you're actually able, Joe, to understand that in the space between the great idea and the full manifestation of that idea, there are some moments where you're just not even sure if you're going to get there and that that part is just as valuable to the journey as the end point that you get to. Um, and that's part of how community is built. So I've just said back to you a lot of things that I think I've heard you say, did I, am I, am I following you? Yes. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's safe to say that, um, uh, the you know the reason that I, I try to be you know try to fulfill the role that I do and and kind of the things that motivate me internally you know are you know we all have life experiences right you know I I was lucky enough to grow up in a city that had amazing people who cared about each other and you know even the times in my life that have been challenging you know my mom when I was growing up when I was 11 years old was diagnosed with horrible bipolar disorder and until she died you know um, about 12 years later a few years after that she was really sick with it and you know when you yourself as a young person or anybody has to experience something and you're vulnerable or you realize that you depend on other people to, to get by, you know, I think it kind of just teaches you that there, you're, you're standing on some very sacred ground and that for all intents and purposes, there was, there's a good chance that you wouldn't have been there. And I think that when people have those moments of realization, it, it kind of, um, molds you in a way to try to figure out then how do you live your life in the same way that other people lived that enabled you to get here. So, you know, you could be a surgeon or you could be an amazing attorney or anybody, but I, I find among people that I cherish and who mentor me, there's an internalization of something in their life that has in some cases been inexplicable in terms of the the difficulty, the pain, or the mm -hmm. suffering, except instead of cherishing it for that moment, there's a sense of, now, how do I put this to work? Um, and I find that I find that's true in, in any field that I work in, in terms of the, the leaders that I get to experience in the private sector and the public sector. So I think for me, you know, and why this is so relevant in Cleveland is it's kind of like the, it's like this, this, um, a perfect time when, when everything's lining up. There's uh, more land than we have a need for housing. There's more of an agricultural sense from where people come from for generations than, than exist in a lot of cities. We've got a great climate for growing. We do. And we've got wonderful weather for it. Um, people, you know, because the different cultures and the ethnicities here, there's a real affinity for food. Um, we have something like the West Side Market, you know, which is almost like I, I joke with people and I say if Cleveland were Rome, the West Side Market would be Vatican City. City, right? It's, <laughs> it's got 
at that kind of like um, uh, a spiritual place uh, placement in our hearts. And and I find that the people that I work with with this they. They, they care about food. They care about the earth. They care about agriculture. They care about all the policy that we're doing. But there's just such a compassion for people in Cleveland and such a sense of, you know, how do we do this in a way that, that makes the city of Cleveland better and more full and more rich tomorrow than it was today? So, you know, I, I think all those things are important. And, you know, you could fill in anything that I said, you know, with other, you know, terms of, of how people move to get things done. But I think for me, what I see so often in terms of being able to, to work with the people that I do is that there's almost like this sense of, um, you know, we're so lucky to be here. There's such a fortune. You know, there's there's a lot of things that could have prevented us from being here. So let's just enjoy the heck out of where we are right now and, and not think any idea is crazy. I mean, I, I can tell you that some of the stuff that we came up with in terms of the local food stuff, people were like, you're nuts. But the, the people who were inside who were really trying to push these policy changes, we never believed that. We never thought that anything we were doing was impossible. And I think that's why we're, we're able to do what we do, because there's just such a sense of support for each other. And we really like each other, you know, and, and I really feel like I'm staffing that team of leaders who really appreciates and understand that, you know, it's, it's not enough that we're here. We have to also help other people get here too. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that, that, that deep response to what I was saying. You know, I want to um, invite you on this show right now, Joe, to share with us your vision. And when I say vision, um, being a radio show called Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life, what I really mean is, a, a, you know, a description of a desirable future, you know, like when you look into the future and you imagine that it can be the way you really want it to be, what is that vision that you see? And, and, and would you share it with us? Yeah, I have a vision of, of a city where um, our children are as loved as they are well-fed. Uh, I have a vision of a city where our grandparents are teaching kids from different cultures who could be their grandkids' age all about their traditions and their, their corners of the globe that their ancestors came from. Um, I have a vision where no plot of land in Cleveland is considered decorative, where everything is made like Marge Piercy's poem to be of use. I have a vision where our grocery stores, 9, 10, 11 months, 12 months once we get our hoop houses completely functional and going, can actually provide local food. By local, I mean it could have been grown in the lot across the street, and people can purchase that. Uh, I have a vision that our kids in every one of our schools will have an understanding in Cleveland where their food comes from. And that, you know, bananas don't come from a can and apples, you know, don't come from the shelf. They grow. And how do kids understand their world through their food? And what does that mean? And how can they share that with each other? You know, I have a vision where people in our community aren't hungry anymore because we've decided that we're going to blend municipal and agrarian and humanitarian code together where we can take care of ourselves. Um, you know, I have a vision where our hospitals become less full because less people are there for heart treatment because they're eating better and eating healthier. And instead of places of illness, they become centers of wellness in terms of helping our next generation. Um, I have a vision where people feel that food is something that brings them together. And as much as we want to be around other people who are different sometimes, you know, it's, it's difficult with so many of the different boxes that we are in society, well, food is one of those things that allows you entree into other people's worlds. You know, the city is a giant picnic table where everyone brings something to share with someone else. 
And you remark at the end of that afternoon, and it's probably going to be on those cold, cold, crystal blue sky, sunny September afternoons in Cleveland when the harvest is in and there's such a sense of a relief from summer and you're getting ready for winter and you share with one another and people say to themselves that this is one of the most extraordinary moments of my life. I I just have that vision that, you know, it's one of those things that brings people together where we don't ask anymore how do we end racism or how do we end things like classism or how do we how do we how do we study and poll and extrapolate data in terms of how to be more kind to each other share your table with someone you know there's there's something revolutionary about feeding each other and I just have that vision that, you know, we are going to be that city that takes care of each other, that embraces each other, that grows our own food so much that we share it with communities all around us, but certainly that provides it for every single man, woman, and child in Cleveland where, you know, we're healthier, we're happier, we're better fed, and we're a city of gardens and orchards and chicken coops and beehives and a place where you can't escape the fact that Cleveland is a place that through its dining room, its kitchen, and its lunchtime tables cares for one another in a way that trans any ism that humanity can put on society and how we treat each other. Wow. We're listening to Joe Simperman, city councilman of Cleveland, Ohio. He's been describing his vision. And um, I want to just tell you that that's, um, you know, such a powerful and such a, a wonderful expression of a future that we can see and work toward and um, imagine, you know, the city as a giant picnic table, you know, the, the wonderful, wonderful language that you've given us. And, you know, for those of you listening, you know, Cleveland is a place that was once rife with steel yards and automobile factories. Today, it already has uh, more than 200 community gardens, uh, more than 30 market gardens, almost two, 20 farmers markets, all of which accept food stamps. And we heard um, Councilman Joe Simperman telling us that they're really working to get a a uh, garden within five blocks of every resident in the city. And that's just a, a huge, exciting piece of what's happening in Cleveland. Um, you know, it's been so wonderful to hear you talk about this today. And I think you, you just really brought it home with that vision that you shared, Joe. And I want to ask you... Um, what you wish that our audience knew about what's possible through urban gardening. I think you've just given us that vision, but what do you wish we knew just sitting here today in our own cities and thinking about this idea? You know, I think the, the, um, the answers to what perplex us are, they're right in front of us. And, you know, they're, they're as close as our backyard or our community garden plot. Um, how do we become a stronger nation? Right? How do we become a more intelligent nation? How do we become a more, more successful nation? How do we become a more compassionate nation? How do we get closer to those principles set forth in the Declaration of Independence, right? All those things, you know, we sometimes think too much. And, you know, if we look at the leadership that's happening in our in our rural communities and our urban communities and our suburban communities of what people are doing person to person, I think the answers are right there. And in Cleveland, at least, um, one of the answers to so many of the questions, how do we become healthier? How do we become kinder? How do we become more successful? How do we thrive more? Um, so many of those questions are answered with, with local food and urban agriculture. My gut is that in America, there's probably a dozen answers to the 12,000 questions. 
one of the answers is just by people getting closer to the thing that nourishes them that they need that when dealt with honestly and in a community way yields so many, many, many other things. Um, but I think sometimes it's the most simple things that are hardest to see. And um, I would just tell people to, if they have these ideas and these energies that we know so many people do, and especially people who are listening to your program, share them with leadership in your community. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you're close to your elected officials or not, you know, give people an opportunity to, to be supportive of you because one of the greatest honors I can tell you as a council person has been you know, the fact that people have been willing to teach me and let me learn and make mistakes, but also allowing me to walk with them as they continue to provide an answer to so many questions. And that answer in Cleveland happens to be in a garden and it's pretty beautiful. It really is. It really is. And, and who inspires you? Oh boy. Um, my wife inspires me, um, because I've never met somebody more close to God than her. Uh, and by God, I mean, just a person of incredible love. Um, the people that I serve every day who struggle and are trying to figure it out in Cleveland, but are figuring it out in the process, they inspire me. Um, you know, I'm inspired by those, those people that say, I'm going to take a place that's filled with tires and broken bottles and, you know, old paint cans, and I'm going to turn this into an Eden-like paradise for people. You know, they're the ones who inspire me because there's, there's um, an inability for their ear to ever hear the word no. And um, those are the people who, who motivate me and inspire me. Councilman Simperman, at the end of a long day, having put out as much energy as you do, as I can tell just by this hour, um, you know, what, what is your, like, what we think about, you've shared so much about who you are and how you come to this whole thing. Um, is it ever exhausting or, or depleting to work on such a big idea? No, it's uh, it's just the opposite. It's a, it's a, it's almost like a, um, the more you work on it, the more excited you get, <laughs> and um, then the more ideas you have, and then the more you share these ideas with other people, then they give you ideas too, and then you've got to get to working on them. Um, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about the West Side Market and how one of the things that people love so much about our public market, which is why Cleveland was able to inspire a once every three year um, markets conference in Cleveland, is that a lot of the people who are there. Are, are artisans. They they make their own cheese. They're fishmongers. They're butchers, but they they actually have a relationship to their food, right? And then they extend that relationship to other people. And one of the things that you know came out yesterday was the aging population of the people that are doing that. And I thought, you know what? We've got an incredible vocational program in the city of Cleveland, where we teach kids about auto mechanics and about machine shop. And I thought, you know, what would happen if we started incorporating in our vocational school food artisanship? You know, how do you become somebody who makes food? How do you become someone who pulls pasta and, and creates, you know, these incredible, you know, baked goods? And that's something that I want to work on. You know, another thing that we've been talking about is, you know, can we create, in addition to that one community garden every five blocks, a series of picnic tables, you know, within view of every street corner where people feel free to just come and congregate and share what they have with each other? You know, I love how do you, it. 
right? How do you create those moments that are easier for people to just sit down and get to know each other? Those those times when, you know, you're on a bench and all of a sudden you're touching somebody that you don't know and they have a crazy food you've never heard of and suddenly you start a conversation and you learn what kimchi is, you know? And You know, Joe, just, we're at we're cut we're at the end of our time together and I have this this feeling of you and me sitting at a picnic table and you just keeping on going and me getting more and more excited. <laughs> I just love this hour with you and I, I'm so grateful for you for joining the show. And I, I want um, to invite your listeners to go and learn more about you by going to where should they go to which website or where should they go to find out more about what you're doing? Uh, they could come to um, uh, Cleveland City Council. Uh, we have a great website uh, with uh, uh, thecityofcleveland.com, and you can go to the city council page. Uh, I'm on Twitter, great. at Joe Simperman, and I, I generally respond to tweets, especially when people are nice. Um, and Very good. great ideas. So any way that we can reach out to people and share what we're doing, we're, we're honored to. Thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for listening today. Have a great week. Thank you. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.